0: This is UCL Uncovering Politics. This week, we're discussing life, politics, and the power of ordinary hope with Professor Mark Steers, the inaugural director of the UCL Policy Lab. Hello, my name is Emily McTernan and welcome to UCL Uncovering Politics, the podcast of the School of Public Policy and Department of Political Science at University College London. This week we have a slightly different kind of episode from our usual. Rather than discussing a single new academic publication, we'll be looking at the ideas and career of Professor Mark Steers. Mark is currently the inaugural director of the UCL Policy Lab, set up to break down the barriers between academic researchers and broader society. His career to date has included stints in academia at Cambridge, Oxford, and Macquarie, being the chief speechwriter of the Labour Party, writing major speeches for Ed Miliband, being the CEO of the New Economics Foundation and the Director of Sydney Policy Lab, all before joining us here at UCL. And Mark has some big ideas about politics and political reform that will be the subject of today's podcast. Two particularly attractive and compelling facets of Mark's work, found especially in his books Out of the Ordinary and Demanding Democracy, are his optimism about the prospects for a better politics and his vision of putting citizens and their interests at the heart of how we make progress. His work offers us a faith in ordinary people and in the possibility of a non-utopian kind of ordinary hope. And these are the ideas that we'll discuss. Welcome, Mark, to UCL Uncovering Politics.
1: Thank you so much.
0: To celebrate your wonderfully diverse and impressive career, you recently gave your inaugural lecture at UCL. A central theme of the talk was the importance of ordinary hope, which reflects your broader research into the ordinary. Could you talk us through this idea of ordinary hope?
1: Yeah, thank you so much. Um, The the key for me has always seemed to be connecting what we do as academics and what we do as sort of politically engaged citizens with the contours of everyday life. You know, I think too often we've separated ourselves away. So when we think about big ideas, you know, either academic ideas or political ideas, we think that they have to be sharply distinct from what it is that we do uh, in the everyday in our neighborhoods or in our schools or with our friends. Um, and I, I think I've always been trying to you know, bridge that divide, or, or to see the, the stuff that goes on in everyday life as being the sort of fundamental foundation for what might go on when we're thinking, um, you know, uh, more ambitiously, um, or what we think is as more ambitiously. Um, so, you know, community interactions, uh, the sense of obligation that we have to each other, you know, in our own, uh, you know, places, neighborhoods. Uh, the feelings that go on in a you know in a really great local primary school um, the opportunities that workers have when they collaborate with each other in their trade unions at you know on the factory floor all of that I think provides the sort of foundation for uh, what you've described as a sort of more optimistic um, you know, sort of political and uh, intellectual life
0: great and how do you see that connecting to or letting us say much about the broader, geopolitical crises that we face more globally? I mean, you might think that looking at how things are going well in a local primary school isn't going to help us very much with thinking about what to do about the war in Ukraine or with uh, rising energy prices, of course, the living crisis. So how do these two sets of things link up?
1: I think we live at a time of of enormous crises. I mean, you're absolutely right in that. And I think many of us uh, get understandably sort of fixated on the big, you know, on on the climate crisis or the geopolitical crisis or, you know, sort of economic inequalities and injustices, uh, and then we, we we sort of you know our eyesight or our focus is on them and what might be the global solutions to them. Um, but then we, we, what we aren't doing is we're not thinking about the process by which change might actually occur. So, you know, we're imagining that we are a sort of global dictator able to push one button or a different one. Or, you know, or, or a prime minister able to pull one lever and suddenly something happens in Burnley. Uh, whereas, in fact, the realities of our politics are that, you know, what goes on in you know, the micro, in the, in the everyday, in the community, in the places where we live, is actually at least one of the major determinants of what eventually goes on in the macro. Uh, And to make that a little less abstract, you know, um, as you kindly mentioned at the start, I I wrote a book called Demanding Democracy about radical movements in American history. And and the thing which becomes abundantly clear when you do that is that the civil rights movement, you know, probably the most successful transformative political movement of the last century uh, in advanced democracies, um you know started with community action, not starting with action on Capitol Hill, you know eventually, of course, got to big bits of legislation and major um you know judicial decisions from the Supreme Court, but it all started with African American citizens refusing to be segregated in their workplaces or in their community cafes or in their schools through action that often began through everyday conversations on. People's front doorstep, or you know, as I've said in in primary schools, or um, you know around the corner, as it were. Uh, and I think you know w- once you see that, and you recognise that you know it finally got to extraordinary heights, um, but beginning uh, as I say, kind of small or local, then you kind of think that there isn't a trade off between these two things, but they're actually part and parcel of the same endeavour.
0: And the thought you have is that we should be thinking of in terms of hope rather than anger in these contexts. Is that right? Because you might think, particularly with the example you've just given, that a really strong motivation for this kind of political change from the micro up to the macro would be something like rage or anger. And of course, a lot of philosophers recently have defended the importance of those motivations in, in reaching some kind of justice and progress. But your focus is very much more on the hope aspect. That-
1: yeah, look, I think there's there's no doubt that there are you know there are things to be angry about and that there are moments in sort of political and social life, where a sort of explosion of indignation gets something going, you know. Um, but I guess I come from a school of thought which distinguishes between what we call mobilisation and sort of organising. And sort of mobilisation can happen, I think, with a big bang of of anger. You get millions of people on the street to to kind of shout. Um, and that can have important consequences and long term impacts. But it's different from what we call organizing, which is a sort of long, slower, drawn out process whereby people get used to working with each other, come up with new solutions, put things into practice, experiment, try things out and then do it all over again. And I think, you know, uh, my sense is that in order to solve those big, complex problems of the kind that you've described, You were going to need at least a large part of that sort of organising philosophy, as well as those occasional explosive moments of mobilisation. So, um, you know, again, I wouldn't want to see them as a as a straightforward either or, but I think sort of hopeful action, which takes a long time uh, and which is grounded in people's everyday experiences, is at least you know part of the solution to the challenges that we face.
0: Swinging back to your inaugural lecture. You mentioned in that lecture that the idea of ordinary hope, you think it's apparent in the thinking of Keir Starmer. And you mentioned that Keir Starmer's upbringing to some degree reflects your own, growing up in the tale of the golden age of capitalism, where ordinary optimism was found, for example, in your personal experience of your family's economic progress. So I wonder if we could swing to that, would you maybe talk us a bit about how you see these ideas potentially influencing the Labour Party as it gears itself up towards an election, and maybe also about your childhood. Was that what kick-started your interest in politics, this experience of growing up at this optimistic moment, or was it something else?
1: Yeah, no, look, I think it's, you know, I mean, it definitely ages me, but you're on Like, You know, when I was very young, I remember it was the sort of, it was the tail end of what we call the golden age of, you know, sort of post-war British capitalism. You know, uh, I was in South Wales in the 1970s, early 1980s, uh, and, you know, before the miners' strike hit in, the, you know, sort of a three. It had been a period, uh, you know, 20, 30 years of growth, of new social services, of people starting to live longer, have more aspiration. You know, I I went to, you know, a local comprehensive school, which had been built in that period of time. And there was a wonderful NHS surgery in our little suburban village, which, again, had emerged from that sort of post-war boom and that sense of optimism and a community coming together. And one of the stories I always tell is I remember as a six or seven-year-old, you know, sort of having to go to the doctor and asking my mum like you know who pays for this and like her pride in telling us well we all pay you know this is the community coming together to look after each other and whoever you are the doctor will see you and try you his or her best to get you back to health Uh, and I just remember the thrill of that as a kid like suddenly realizing that your people were looking out for us um that was just magical really and then of course all of that started to evaporate as the 80s wore on and um thatcherism took hold and uh, you know a kind of harder form of life um sort of prevailed uh and i think you know what often when i'm looking back to my childhood or to, to the earlier years from our politics you think like so little of that sense of optimism and collective endeavor has survived you know there, there have been upturns you know there are things in the blair and brown years which were good like you know, the introduction of the minimum wage and All things like that. But nonetheless, that spirit of social cooperation uh, and the hope that it gave ordinary families like my mum and dad, um, I I think has has long been missing. Um, So then when I turn to contemporary politics and what might be possible, that's what I'm always looking for. I'm looking for sort of politicians that understand that uh, too often life is not hopeful. Um, for ordinary people, um, you know, working class people, middle class people across the country, um, but that it can be and collective effort is what we require to, to make it so. Um, and so when you see glimmerings of that, it sort of yeah makes me smile and gives me a, a bit of a spring in my step uh, and hopes that better times might be ahead.
0: And you see some hope then for those better times. Do you think that there's prospects that the contemporary incarnation of the Labour Party might lead us back? The, the,
1: truth, yeah, the truth is it's like still a mixed bag, isn't it? I mean, like, you know, we I think we, we've grown we've gone through a period. Let me put it this way, a sort of 10 year period, I think, of anger and indignation of all kinds. Uh, and again, some of it justified and some of it not, you know, from the far right to the far left and a kind of populist politics, very noisy, very sort of agitational. Uh, occasionally giving glimpses of a better world, but often I think just leaving people feeling stressed out um, uh, and probably more powerless than when they started. And I think what we're heading into is a period of slightly more calm heads and thoughtful and considered responses. The challenge though is, you know are those calm heads just gonna be sort of boringly orthodox, like not actually taking on the problems of the last four decades? Or are those calm heads going to be sort of seriously engaged in the hard work of reform and change that I think we require? And, you know, and on a good day at the moment, I think, all right, we might well get the latter. And there are bits of what Joe Biden's been doing and bits of what Anthony Albanese has been doing that make you think, well, there's a social democratic politics emerging, which is serious, considered a little bit slow sometimes, but nonetheless, like dedicated to making things better. Yeah, but then occasionally they fall back into, you know, sort of risk averse technocratic politics and doesn't really look as if the big change is actually happening anytime soon. So, you know, I try to be hopeful and there are definitely glimmerings, but I don't think it's a sort of done deal yet where we can all just sort of sit back and, uh, you know, sort of uh, celebrate their success.
0: Well, let's turn then to talking about your experience working for the Labour Party as a as a speechwriter. So. We fast forward in quite a few years, I guess, from the upbringing questions to the next stage of your career, writing speeches for the Labour Party. It sounds fascinating. Yes, <laughs> to start, did your academic work in political theory impact your work as a speechwriter, do you think? Yeah,
1: it did in two ways. I mean, the first way is I, I worked for Ed Miliband, and Ed is a wonderful man, but he's also, and also, you know, a highly intellectual politician. So many of those speechwriting sessions with, with Ed were. Very familiar to any academics listening, you know so those of you who've written essays or papers or lectures uh then you know it was often a very similar process with Ed you know we'd read some books, we'd talk to some clever people we'd kind of think things through we'd like go backwards and forwards and relitigate arguments, and uh yeah, it felt oftentimes being in a in an academic setting and I know that some of his critics listening will say you could tell that <laughs> from the outputs, you know. Uh, you know, often often more carefully considered logical argument than sort of soaring rhetoric because that was very much sort of Ed style. So so that helped. Um, but the second thing I think which really made a difference was, you know, I had been fortunate to work in my political theory life with some extraordinary thinkers. So collaborated with Danielle Allen, who some people will know from her fabulous book talking to strangers and with bonnie honig uh we were writing together about uh, political realism and compromise in politics and democratic challenge all the questions we've just been talking about really um and what i took from danielle and bonnie really flowed into every part of that political endeavor i mean they are political thinkers who show that you know very very high-powered political philosophy or political theory need not be detached from very everyday political concerns. Um, And so I tried to channel as much of that as I possibly could into the work that I was doing.
0: And what lessons did you learn, do you think, or should we learn, perhaps in general, from Ed Miliband's unsuccessful 2015 general election campaign?
1: I think everybody probably takes the same lesson in a way from Ed's time now, you know, whether they're criticising him from the left or from the right, is that that too many moments of indecision probably in that five years that uh, Ed was leader, that there were competing ideas about what the future of labor or social democratic or left politics ought to be. And that Ed was such a open-minded and creative person that he, he sort of gave, sort of some indication that you might go in all various different kinds of directions you know so sometimes a big aggressive speech attacking predatory capitalism another a very communitarian speech you know using some of my you know, ideas here about sort of ordinariness and the possibility of change from below you know at other times very technical arguments about um, what's required for tackling climate change and all of them kind of good in their way um, but never probably being sustained enough uh, over a particular period of time, uh, and i don 't blame Ed for that because you know what we were doing was we were emerging out on the other side of the financial crisis, the collapse of a long standing labor government trying to reimagine the party whilst also trying to run an opposition and so I think he, his instinct was to try ideas out and see where the energy might be. but I do think at the end of the day that meant that you hadn 't been prosecuting a single argument loudly enough or with you know sort of confidence and uh, and determination over the long period of time which you probably do need to do to win an election
0: great and that leads us neatly onto the next question so the next question was going to be what do you think is a fundamental element of a good speech and it sounds like in this context perhaps consistency is one of those <laughs> anything else that you know, any budding or aspiring speechwriters might want to think about as they construct
1: oh absolutely i mean I, I do love the process of speech writing i mean i you know one of the great things about being able to step out of academia into speech writing for the years that i did was you work with people who can do things with words which are just magical you know like uh you never get taught as an academic you know and and so i you know i worked with theater directors and you know movie directors and script writers and they taught me all kinds of amazing things about writing i mean i think probably the the big thing which i take away an obvious point really but it's important is that speeches are stories and not just logical arguments and so they've got to have character in them and often that's the character of the person giving the speech you know so they're telling their own life story or they're making sense of you know important determining moments in their life or they're giving a sense of some deep profoundly held values or vision that they might have but you know they are the primary sort of actor in the story and they are describing themselves as much as describing the argument that they're trying to make and obviously barack obama is uh, is the most recent genius in that vein i mean Every Obama speech is really a little bit of autobiography as well as a sort of you know, description of a policy proposal um, or what have you. Um, so I think that's probably the, the biggest lesson that I learned. And I've always tried to share that with anyone trying to write a speech, which is, you know, if you hold yourself back or you don't allow yourself to be part of what it is that you're sharing, then your audience says, well, what's the point of listening to you? You know, I, I could just read this in a textbook. Um, whereas what they want to do is they con- connect with the character who's, who's making uh, making the argument in front of them.
0: That's a really interesting insight into a speech. I wonder, is there any worry that this leads more towards a sort of personality politics or a big man politics? Because you're centering the individual in those speeches so much rather than the actual... Yeah, I
1: mean, the, the, that's right. I mean, I think the the challenge always, and again, I think Obama was very good at this, is to connect the very personal very particular story with the grander argument or bigger narrative that you want to you know to be developing and it really takes us back to the start of our conversation today which is the the sort of small and the big shouldn't be in opposition to each other but they are actually mutually reinforcing so telling a story from one's life or from your, your own set of values Ought to be the sort of emotional underpinning for something else, which is, you know, a logical account of what's going on in a country or in the world, um, and what actions are required to turn things around. And I think the problem is, the problem we actually face is that, as you say, that people tend to be good at one or at the other, uh, and you, it's very rare that you get people who combine the two. And that means the sort of emotionally powerful speech givers. Tend to be the populists or the you know the folks who actually don't really have anything to say, um, but then the people who do have something technical to say are often so dry and so sort of abstract that they're unable to get an audience uh, sentimentally connect with them, and uh, people sort of glaze over and turn off and you know I think the challenge for us always ought to be how can you reconcile or bring these two things together? So that people's pulse quickens when they're listening, they get excited or, or you know, their eyes start to water, they feel the sentiment and the emotion, but at the same time, they're engaging practically and properly with the, the issues at hand. And um, as I say, it can be done, uh, but too often, I think people revert to one end or the other of that uh, spectrum.
0: And turning now to your current role with the UCL Policy Lab, you're seeking to bring together diverse people, citizens, scholars, policymakers and others to improve politics and policy. What lessons do you draw from your career up to this point about how best to achieve that? Perhaps we've tackled some of that already. I guess getting that story centred as we try and talk to people outside of the academic bubble.
1: It's, it's all for me. It's all, that's right. It's all about the, the humanity essentially, which is, I think, Partly just because of how we're trained as academics, what we tend to do is to go, lean on the sort of evidence or the arguments or the technical detail, uh, our sophistication, our you know our toolkit, uh, and think that that's what ought to get as an audience. Um, whereas in fact, you've got to do the human work first, which is to establish the connection, find the areas of common interest, and, and as my old friend Arnie Graf always put it remember that relationship precedes action, you know, that people will only ever do something with you once they like you or trust you or believe in you or, you know, have some sense of what it is that you're trying to achieve. So what I'm trying to encourage our academics to do and sort of work with folks on is to build those connections, um, you know, with all kinds of people, policymakers, journalists, community campaigners, spend time with each other, understand each other's points of view and perspectives and where f- people come from and then genuinely collaborate by bringing our special academic skill set into a conversation with different kinds of skill sets. And you know that often when I say all that it often sort of frustrates people in the sense that it does sound slower <laughs> than just turning up and giving a paper and hoping to have an impact, you know and uh, there are definitely people in university administration all around the world who who kind of hope that all that academic needs to do is to give a lecture or send it off print off to somebody you know and and change will happen um but in my experience you know you've got to do that 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 sort of proper human work first um and then all kinds of things become possible which weren't previously possible
0: it's a very optimistic picture of the and um, of the important work that the policy lab will be doing what, what do you see its role being in an era of perma crisis so you're optimistic that this will be of real assistance to people who are trying to make the kinds of change that we've been discussing today.
1: I, I think I've become even more optimistic since arriving at UCL you know so uh, we launched the policy lab um, you know seven eight months ago, and I thought it would take a long long time to open people up to you know the kind of possibilities I've just been describing. But what I've actually discovered is because of the crises we face you know because these problems are so intense and so scary, you know climate. Um, you know economic injustices uh, etc policymakers of all kinds and including in parts of the ideological spectrum you might not imagine you know they come into these conversations open to learn and to think and to get to know people and we've had you know it's been amazing we've had cabinet ministers and shadow cabinet ministers their teams um, you know high-powered journalists heads of trade unions community campaigners like always not just responding to an email but like turning up to start a conversation over coffee with research teams in UCL uh, and to develop those kinds of relationships that we've just been talking about. And that, I think, comes from an eagerness to work out what can we do about these crises that we're confronted with and a sense that, you know, what we're currently doing doesn't work, you know, Uh, and what we're currently doing doesn't work, you know, partly because there are too few voices around the table or there are too few perspectives being taken into account uh, or, or someone out there with a fantastic solution has never been invited before, you know, into the room. Um, so, you know, I'm very, very confident that we are making headway. know, um, yeah, and, and that relational work, bringing people into discussions with each other is the sort of fundamental precondition for coming up with new answers to things that we all want resolved.
0: And I take it that your upcoming book, England, Hughes, England, is very much about examining the challenges and possibilities that we face. So I take it, I've heard that you've been traveling around the UK, including to places like Blackpool, to try and get a sense of those challenges in more concrete terms. I wonder if you could tell our listeners a bit about the book and about what you found on those visits around England.
1: Yeah, so I collaborated on uh, this book with my great friend uh, and sort of inspiration, Tom Baldwin. And Tom was a journalist in an earlier life and then he came to work with Ed Miliband with me and then he helped run ran the People's Vote campaign, the sort of anti-Brexit campaign. And and after all of that time, Tom and I sort of sat down and everything had been so hard. We'd lost the Brexit referendum, <laughs> you know, we'd lost the, uh, the the election with Ed and so many people were bleak about the future of the country. And so we, we kind of wanted just to, again, and to investigate the sources of optimism or, or hope what might, what might be out there that would make us feel better about the potential for a you know, for a fairer future. And Tom, being a journalist, just said, well, like, the thing you've got to do, obviously, is to talk to people. And so at that point, when we started, I was still in Sydney, and he just started going around the country talking to, again, council leaders or heads of voluntary organisations or people, like, really making change in their own neighbourhoods. And the stories were just, they were so inspiring. I mean, it, it sounds cliché to say it, but the uplift that we felt from hearing what people are able to do in extraordinarily difficult circumstances, gave us a sense of a country which we wanted to share more widely, which is why we wrote the book. And, and so the book really is a discussion between two ways of looking at the country. You know, one very grandiose, very abstract, very sometimes very angry. Um, you know, just full of full of a sort of bigness that is not rooted in people's actual lives or in actual places. And we contrast that with what we find when you take this more community-oriented perspective and try to see the changes that people are making. You know, we went um, there Tom, Tom spent some time at Wolverhampton Wanderers Football Club and saw the work that their charitable foundation is doing on... Um, developing sort of racial integration racial harmony in parts of wolverhampton uh, and again a most unlikely sort of source for social change but the the most wonderful stories uh, of people coming together across difference uh, in a community which has been riven by social hatreds in the past it's just really fantastic stories but also the work in blackpool that you know the council leader is doing trying to negotiate with both tory party and the labour party to get support for very basic social services in an extraordinarily challenged town. And just that level of dedication and, and eventual success you know, gives you a sense that there is something for all of us to do um, when we're confronted by the difficulties that we see all around us.
0: So I take it this one's much more focused on contemporary change, contemporary politics, whereas your previous books, is this right? Is this fair to say, have been looking at the past to get potential solutions for the future? Uh,
1: I could I, exactly right, exactly. I mean, I I think basically Tom made me braver. I mean, I, I no, not to have a go at historians because I think I am a historian. Really, like I always feel really comfortable in a library surrounded by archives or, or old books, you know. Uh, and I've got them all around me in my office at home, like, you know, sort of very dusty books you pick up in secondhand bookshops about, you know, the Labour Party in the 1920s. And, and that's my, like, natural home. Uh, but Tom was saying, like, come on, like, the, the country is facing contemporary challenge. And it needs some of us to turn our minds to what we ought to do about it, or, you know, uh, especially those of us who've been in you know, roles advising politicians like what would we say if we were sat in a room with Keir Starmer tomorrow you know um, and to, to answer that you have to talk to people or, or see people or research with people who are making change right now um, and so you know he gave me the 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 energy and the impetus to do that uh, and I hope people will enjoy the kind of product which i think takes the sort of ethos that i've tried to have in my historical work and brings it up to date
0: when should we expect this book when does it hit the shelves
1: who knows it's off with the publisher so <laughs> i would love it's you know, the manuscript is done uh, and uh, it's with its publisher right now and we are going through the process that again any academic on the or, or listening to this podcast will know uh, of waiting for comments and feedback and then uh, publication dates but hopefully hopefully sooner rather than later um it's already had three prime ministers in the drafting, you know, so every time that somebody resigns, you, you have to re-edit it. Uh, so goodness knows how many there will be before it finally arrives in the bookshop.
0: There's a less optimistic vision of, of our political future right there in the number of prime ministers to come. Thank you so much, Mark, for joining us today and giving us such a positive vision of politics and of the possibility of reform and a fairer future. We've been exploring the career and research of Mark Steer. Remember, to make sure that you don't miss out on that or other future episodes of UCL Uncovering Politics, all you need to do is subscribe. You can do so on Apple, Google Podcasts, or whatever podcast provider you use. And while you're there, we'd love it if you could take a moment of your time to rate or review us too. I'm Emily McTernan. This episode was researched by Alice Hart and produced by Eleanor Kingwell-Barnham. Our theme music is written and performed by John Mann. This has been UCL Uncovering Politics. Thank you for listening.